Dear Pari, We knew when we adopted that we may never know the full story of how you came to be in the adoption pool. We knew we would perhaps not have all the answers to the questions you may have. But we thought we will do everything that we could to find those answers for you or with you if and when you wanted them. The purpose of starting this podcast was initially to break the stigma around adoption and the myths linked to it. But we realized that this podcast wouldn't be complete if we didn't discuss the one aspect that leaves many, many adoptive families, especially parents, uncomfortable. The question of how a baby comes into the adoption pool is something that every parent worries about, but not many want to discuss it. In this part of the episode, we spoke to Arun Dole, a child rights activist who has unveiled many scandals in the adoption system in India and other countries. An adoptee himself, he has been termed an extremist, an anti-adoption advocate and has been banned from many, many adoptive parent groups. Welcome to Dear Pari, a groundbreaking podcast series presenting facts, bursting myths and tackling stigma around adoption. It will bring to you varied viewpoints from adoptees, parents, adoption experts and government officials. This podcast is being brought to you by Suno India, a podcast platform for issues that matter. Hi, this is Priya. And this is Rakesh, your host of Dear Pari. Arundol was adopted by a German couple from an Indian orphanage. Like many adoptees, he started to search for his roots in his late teens. The Indian orphanage did not want to provide access to his file. Arun addressed the Indian courts and it took 17 years to finally obtain access to the desired information. During his struggle to obtain his rights to know the identity of his mother, Arun teamed up with Indian child rights activists. This was the beginning of his advocacy on children's rights work. Following a major trafficking scandal that came out in 2005, Arun took up the cases of several Indian families whose children were kidnapped, sold to orphanages and adopted abroad. The media reporting about his own case led many Indian adoptees to contact him. He advised them on their searches and eventually organized searches in India with the help of his Indian network of social workers and lawyers. Arun believes in taking rights-based approach to understand adoption and believes that the current system of adoption across the world, including in India, has led to the commodification of children. I just want to understand what do you think is going wrong in the adoption system, you know, whether it's in India or in other countries where you are working. Um, and why you and your organization feel so strongly about um, adoption not being, you know, the, the right mechanism for children to be placed in care. If you really read the articles of the UN Convention, you know, there's the right of the child to education, health care, non-discrimination. I mean, they're really broad and the children are becoming individual rights holders and this rights have to be fulfilled by the state. And if you read, for example, Article 20, it's about continuity and not about permanency. So that was all discussed during the negotiations. So if you really look into the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in relation to adoption, the agencies in the adoption lobby didn't really like that. So they came up with another convention, 
they started negotiating another convention under private international law that's called the Hague Adoption Convention. So the Hague Adoption Convention prefers permanency and regulates the business and tries to keep out, um, you know, adoptions from the purview of criminal law. So the Hague Convention really differs in conflicts with the UN Convention. Um, in rather short terms, the UN Convention basically says adoption is not a child protection measure, even not domestic adoption. It is rather a civil order, so it's private law. Then in relation to intercountry adoption, it says intercountry adoption is only permissible if the child cannot be cared for in, other, in any other suitable manner. And of course, intercountry adoption shouldn't be a child protection measure. What now in the child protection world is co called continuum of care, which is totally wrong, how the way how it's presented. But if you really look into, into a hierarchy, how a child should be cared for by the state, yeah, because Article 20 very clearly says, recognizes that there are children who cannot be cared for by their parents, but then this care has to be organized by the state. So Article 20 also lays out there's foster care, kinship care, kafala, even essentially informal care, even though it's not uh, explicitly mentioned, and of course, residential care. So there's nothing wrong with residential cares from a policy point of view. What is clear from international law that United Nations Convention is public law and is much higher in standing than the Hague Adoption Convention. So if there is a conflict, it is very clear a Hague Convention cannot write, override the UN Convention. Very clear. He further explained how the policy has changed making adoption the main pillar of child care and protection system, which eventually has led to further commodification of the children. His viewpoint is at odds with what is being presented to the parents seeking to adopt. India is of course implementing the Hague Adoption Convention. I consider this unconstitutional, um, a violation of Article 21 in fact, because children cannot be commodified in any way. And the children, if they cannot be cared for by their parents, have to be cared for by the state. Of course, not in big orphanages where they get abused, yeah? But so appropriate care has to be uh, given to children. But the state cannot sell the children, which the state is actually doing, whether it's domestic adoptions or, or inter-country adoption. Around 2009, 2010, the court started using the Juvenile Justice Act. And with the Juvenile Justice Act, of course, adoption became a main pillar of the whole child care system, what is then called uh, children in need of care and protection. And the whole policy on child care, you know, built, a, built around adoption. And it leads, yeah, of course it leads to, I mean, the demand is now incredible. We have 20,000 Indian parents waiting and just 2,000 children in the so-called pool, what the CIO calls pool of available children. And what the government is doing is essentially linking up all childcare institutions and also trying to get, you know, I, I of course agree with registering unregistered institutions. I think, of course, no, no children's home should be unregistered. But what comes with is that every child in every children's home get, gets mapped and gets put into a caring system. And then we have linkages between the CWCs and the residential care institutions. So every child in residential care is at risk to be freed for adoption, and I say has a price tag on its head. 
either it's 40,000 or 70,000 rupees, which essentially Indian parents are now paying, or $5,000 if the child goes abroad. And this is commodification of children. I object it. Now we come to a very important point. So if you adopt under Harma, usually it's a family-to-family adoption. So we see now currently, of course, a lot of trafficking, I would say, happening, because under Harma you can just actually legally traffic. Basically, it's a doctor, gynecologist, just establish the contact between you and the family, between the adoptive parents and the, let's say, unwed mother. That's a typical case. Uh, the family of the unwed mother, you go outside of the office and you give some aid money to the unwed mother, I mean, under the guise of aiding her. So then it's doubtful whether this was even payment and they make an adoption deed and register it. Most Indian parents would, of course, then say, adoptive parents would say this was a legal adoption. The, the mother couldn't take care of the child. The unwed mother was 16, so how can she can take? And the, so, But this is a gross human rights violation. And here I mentioned the monetary transaction. Because uh, in international law, trafficking is defined, I mean, has certain conditions. And of course, once you pay money to even one euro, even one cent, if you pay money to the biological parents, this clear-cut traffic is punishable offense. So the whole regulation of adoption went into the direction to put, you know, put agencies in between. The agencies aren't much better. That's a problem. But that is what, you know, also the Supreme Court tried to regulate the agencies and, you know, what the Hague Convention tries to regulate all these agencies. So now the regulations became more and more stricter, more and more checks and balances were there. But it didn't really help, as you could see. And it was always mostly that adoptive parents and specifically foreign adoptive parents would never know where the child comes from. So the adoptive parents had and have no chance of checking the background of the children and they can only rely on the paperwork. So I know what is written in the paperwork is not necessarily what, you know, the real story is. The court currently only gets a package from the child welfare committee. The court has essentially no time to look into anything anymore. They have to, the judges under very high pressure to pass orders within two months. All the scrutiny which was there before, like ICSW, uh, the VCAs and all that is all removed. And now Manika Gandhi, the minister goes even there and wants to make district magistrate, you know, the, the one passing the adoption order. So, um, this is going to be really a mess. And an, a pro- prospective adoptive parent has no chance. Absolutely, in this system, has no chance at all to verify, uh, to be sure that this child is not, you know, that this adoption uh, that was really legally free and ethically free for adoption, according to the CARA guidelines also. So I think it's section 44, 45 you are uh, entitled to actually um, get assistance from the agency with the so-called roots search, whether they actually then give you the information. I have my doubts because that's the biggest problem in our work for the adult adoptees to get the information uh, from the agencies. And then also, of course, uh, I understand the um, social stigma attached to 
unwed mothers. So searching in cases of unwed, unmarried mothers is very complicated and it should be only done by professionals who have experience and don't just knock on the, on the door of the mother who is now married and yeah has a living family secret and we can't just reveal that. So that's clear. I generally object to the issue of un, unmarried mothers having to relinquish their children and uh, I don't believe they don't want their children. It's a very uncomfortable truth for many adopted parents. We came across one of your posts in the adoption groups talking about uh, this very uncomfortable truth and and I remember all the prospective parents getting really angry on you in the comments and uh, saying then are you saying that we shouldn't we shouldn't adopt children? Are you saying then these children should be um, you know left to die? There are children, sometimes children, who are actually really found abandoned. But it does happen. And in a country like 1.3 billion people, lots of things happen. And children are abandoned. If these children, after really due inquiry, you know, I mean, there has to be a police complaint registered and the police should actually really investigate. Because we have also having had cases where children were kidnapped to get rid of a hair. And they were kidnapped and abandoned. Yeah, so... There has to be a due inquiry, but if after a due inquiry really nothing can be found, I wouldn't have any problems if a really abandoned child gets adopted in country. Then it is very, very clear that under Section 317 of the Indian Penal Code, abandonment of a child is a crime. And in India, interestingly enough, apparently couldn't just abandon the child to the state because essentially every surrendered child is abandoned to the state, but nobody is really held responsible. Being a parent, be giving birth, being a father, being a mother comes with a responsibility. You cannot legalize the abandonment of children. We also understand the, the discrimination of girl children. So it's very easy for a family, if the government legalizes, to just discard with a baby girl. It should not be done. It should not be encouraged. And it's also not the answer to the gender discrimination. So um, I'm really, 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 really against it. And I really think that uh, one day some stronger group should file a criminal complaint and fight and get this abolished. The people who support the cradle scheme, they support it by saying, well, isn't this a better alternative than baby girls or even boys for instance but of, of course often in india it is the girl child who is discriminated isn't that isn't that a better thing to do than leaving the child um, in a gutter or in a or in a garbage bin or you know on on near uh, you know in a, in a railway track for instance so you know a lot of people do say that the cradle scheme therefore offers an alternative to childless families and also to uh, a chance to the child but if one hears you, you, you think that, well, no, you in fact feel like those parents who are abandoning because of whatever reason, um, teenage pregnancy, sexual assault, um, poverty, whatever might be the reason, you, you actually feel that they should be um, penalized or, you know, or the state in that sense should be penalized for, uh, for encouraging abandonment. There's a lot of emotions involved. Well, this, there's, there's, there's a childless couple which actually is doing well and there's a family or, you know, child in difficult circumstances, so let's match them. It's a fairy tale. So it's a, it's a wonderful emotional story 
you know, that child which finally found a permanent fam loving family, otherwise would have landed up in the garbage bin, this, this rescued child. And I really object to this rescuing or rescuing the orphans or whatever. Again, let's go back. The children have rights. Parents have obligations. I'm not saying that necessarily an unwed mother should be punished, for, you know, when the family, the family actually abandons the child. Here I'm saying the Indian government, instead of setting up a baby credit scheme so that one can discard with the baby easily, should set up support systems for unwed mothers. So I'm saying it should be very, very sorrowfully investigated. And the government essentially does away now, the new adoption system essentially tries to do away with the police investigation. So not necessarily an FIR is even filed anymore. And it's the state legalizing the abandonment of, of the children. So what a society are we becoming if we say abandoning your child is okay? Abandoning a baby is okay? No, it's not. You just said uh, uh, that the, uh, the regulation, the new regulation uh, systems are actually um, sort of doing away with the filing of the FIR, but... From what I understand, uh, from having read the regulations and also from what we were told as part of, you know, um, the counseling that we underwent, it was that all these children, um, you know, they're, they're basically now in three categories, surrendered, abandoned and orphaned. And with regards to the abandoned children, the, the police has to, um, you know, do a search, try to find the closest family and do everything possible to place the child with that family. And in the case of surrendered children, um, the parents are given two months to sort of change their mind. And with the orphan children, again, all attempts are made to place the child um, back with the you know closest biological family. This is the reason that's being put out as why the number of children who are legally free for adoption is only, say, 2,000 or 3,000, as opposed to 18,000 plus parents waiting. Um, what is your take on that? Basically, here we speak about the black box. So we don't know what the child welfare committee and the residential care institutions, the child care institutions are doing. As adoptive parents, you don't really know how the child came into the system. And you have no chance to know. So you rely on the child welfare committee of executing this work. So if you see, uh, you know, here in Maharashtra, for example, uh, many of the child welfare committees, members, are running their own or are linked to residential care institutions. So there's a clear-cut con conflict of interest. It's also clear-cut, by the way, against the juvenile justice rules. But this is, this is happening all over the country. So you just simply cannot know. Because conflict of interest is nicely said. Essentially, you can also call it differently, is corruption. It's not so clear that an FIR, it should be an FIR should be registered, but unfortunately, it's not done anymore. So abandoned children. Okay, it happens. And as I explained, yeah, if really after due inquiry, the child is being adopted in country, I, I would never say anything about it. Um, then we had the orphan children. We, well, what are orphan children? I mean, most of the children are born into large families. And with, with assistance, these families can take care of the children. And even if the child is an orphan, then the child has the right to be cared for by society, by the state. Not to get a new birth certificate, not to get a new identity, not to get his identity totally changed, not 
losing all its relation to cousins, grandparents, grand-grandparents, whatever. All the legal family ties are cut with adoption. So it's like a, like a transplantation, like a heart transplant. Let the orphan child retain his identity, let him retain his culture, and let him grow up in a family environment organized by the state. This is essentially what the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child State. The state has to care, take care of it. That, of course, the child should not be in, put in a jail-like institution where he gets, the child gets abused. I mean, this goes without saying. So the government has to really assure that the resident should care or the care for children, for orphan children, has been properly organized. But the government has no business in selling this children. Arun told us that in his experience of working alongside birth families and adoptees alike across countries, he has come across many parents who were tricked into signing relinquishment deeds. Poverty can never be a reason for adoption. But I think that in many cases, poverty of the parents and the lack of social support system, and I here mean also financial support, um, leads to parents and distressed families surrendering, signing surrender deeds, not knowing what they actually signed. This whole process of Surrendering, I really object to. Also, because studies show that parents and mothers who surrender children don't even really understand the final consequences. So that this child, which is surrendered, is no more at all a member of that original family. And if you sign something which you don't really understand, it can also not be valid. So, or if you're tricked into signing this. So I really, really, really contest um, the process of surrendering. He says it's important to improve residential care for children and to also look for alternate options such as kinship care, foster care, small family type units to look after children whose biological families are alive but unable to look after them. He insists that governments and organizations support families who are unable to look after their children by helping them through their times of crisis. Most importantly, he stresses on the need to have a rights-based approach to combat child trafficking, apart from proper implementation of UNCRC. He further spoke to us about the need for strengthening root search mechanisms so that adult adoptees rightfully find out more about their birth story if they want to. What concerns me as an adult adoptee, of course, is that you know, our work is really blocked by authorities in the receiving countries as well as in the sending countries. So CARA has been doing since years trying to put roadblocks and roadblocks. So the current regulations essentially say that only the adoption agency itself can conduct the search. But, you know, they wouldn't, do, they wouldn't bring out fraud, you see. So you need, there's no independent organization, even in the adoption rules mentioned, who would conduct a search. There's also absolutely zero funding being put for that. So even, even if SARA and CARA and other, other stakeholders are actually mentioned in the adoption rules, they don't have any funding to do that, nor do they have training. So the state doesn't even have social workers who would be capable in going out like our social worker does in the field. So there's no concern. And yes, this makes me angry. There's no concern for those like us who were once children, who were adopted children, no concern for us. 
yeah, I would actually need support from adoptive parents. I mean, once you're an adoptive parent, you're an adoptive parent. I understand you can't put the child back, but I have quite some adoptive parents who actually support our work morally or financially. But what I don't find is, you know, adoptive parents supporting their now adult children in the search cases, for example. No adoptive parents pays for a search. They say, oh, okay, you pay now, you're adult. Well, it's very complicated. And young adoptee of 21, 23 just doesn't have the financial resources. I'm talking here about intercountry adoptee. I was told, you know, uh, records of India are sealed. And I asked him, listen, can you show me these laws? Nobody showed me these laws. I said, okay, okay. Can you show me the law where it says it's also confidential? Well, then I came across the Andhra Pradesh activists. And they told me, listen, Arun, you are entitled to that information. I was like, what? Yeah. You, you can have that information according to the law in India. I said, what? I'm told that there's a law which bars us. No, 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 it's like that. Look, can you send me the law? So go back to the 1984 LK Pandey judgment, Supreme Court of India, section 23, read it, read it. The, the, the famous Bhagwati judgment, which re regulated adoption in India from 1984, it's called the El Kipande case. I can send it. So it says very clearly, you know, the adoptive parents should be given the information, and it's up to them, specifically here, the court says after the age of maturity, but that doesn't bind adoptive parents, you know, from giving the child the information earlier. So the adoptive parents were entitled to, are entitled under the Supreme Court judgment to all the information and should be already mentioned in the child study report. If not, then they can actually request it from the agent. So we have been all fooled. Yeah, of course, I understand the resistance. I mean, I fought myself 17 years. Yeah, so I started actually, you know, I started actually searching in 1993. Yeah, and I found my mother back only in 2010, after seven years of litigation, so let that sink in. I had to give up my career to fight to find my mother. And in 1993, the orphanage told me, oh, oh there are no fights. Get over it, you know, time heals all wounds. That's what they told me. So, and I came back, you know, in 96 to India. And this essential thing, you know, it would have taken the orphanage 10 minutes, half an hour to trace back the fight. And in 2001, actually, I got them to get the file, and then they put it in front of my nose. And that angered me. So it took me seven years of litigation. And the rights of the adoptees, at least in part, are now in the CARA guidelines and the adoption rules because of my fight. You see? Yeah. So my concrete advice also to adoptive parents is, and to adoptees always is, is not, not trying to reinvent the wheels. Rakesh and I are adoptive parents by choice. And during the course of making of this podcast series, we have often had to take a breath when we read adoptee struggles. It goes straight to the, am I a terrible person because I adopted? And sometimes wondering if they were talking about me. We can only imagine how much more tougher this reality is for those who have been adopted. While we are aware and acknowledge that there are well-adjusted adoptees to whom adoption is just part of their story, we as parents are also aware that this isn't the case with every adoptee. We can't speak for them and we don't want to also. We love our dear Pari with all that's within us. We wish we could look into the future and tell ourselves that it would all be okay. 
We can hope for the best of course and pray that we can spare her of any and all heartbreak. For now, we will continue to learn and have an open mind and hope that one day she'll be able to tell us if we did the right thing or not. We didn't do this podcast to encourage or discourage people from adopting. We did this as a way to share all that we are learning with others so that they can make informed choices on how to deal with adoption and all the package it carries. We also hope voices like Arun aren't curbed by adoptive parents or labeled as extremists. If we truly want the best for children, not just us but every child in this country, then we believe we need to think from what truly is best for the child. Who are we to decide if children shouldn't be raised by unwed mothers? When single parents can adopt, why can't we be more accepting as a society of unwed mothers? Ironical, isn't it? Why do we speak ill of birth parents and assume that they are the worst? Why don't we adopt special needs children? And why are we so scared of our children looking for their birth parents? And how far do we as a society have to come in terms of accepting adoption as a norm? We don't have answers to these questions, but we do hope that the questions lead us all to think more, reflect more. In the next part of this episode, we will talk about inter-country adoption specifically linked to the tragic case of Sherin Matthews, a three-year-old girl who was adopted by NRAs and was murdered. As independent producers, we rely a lot on you to spread the word. If you like our podcast, please take time and let your friends and family know about it. It's taken a lot of time and money to get you these episodes. If you appreciate it and have found them useful, then help us get you more such engaging and well-researched content. You can head to patreon.com slash sunoindia underscore in and help us produce this content from just $2 a month. If you can spare a little more, there's all sorts of bonus content available along with additional benefits at the $5 and upward tiers. Your contributions will help us stay independent and bring to you unbiased and well-researched content. If you believe that knowledge is power like we do, please do consider contributing to us at patreon.com slash sunoindia underscore in. You'll also find this link on our website. We really, really appreciate your enthusiasm and support you've shown us since we've started. And we hope to be able to continue to provide you with such engaging content in days and months to come. And yes, don't forget to share this episode on social media with the hashtag Dear We also welcome you to subscribe for free on our website sunoindia.in Subscribers will receive the episodes as soon as they are released and will also have access to bonus tracks in the coming days. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or any other podcasting app of your choice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Pari. You can send in your comments or voice notes to hello at sunoindia.in. Also, we are partnering with The Logical Indian to raise awareness about adoption. If you would like to contribute, please let us know. You can reach out to Suno India via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We would like to thank Nikhil Rao of Indian Ocean for original music, Priyanka Kumar for artwork, Tarun Nirvan our digital lead and Kunika Balhotra our communication officer for their support.